Welcome to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio, where we explore pathways to health for self, society, and the planet. We are home to a range of voices, as there is no single roadmap for meeting the challenges of our times. Tune in each week to expand your perspective, deepen your attention, and cultivate practices that support personal, communal, and global health. Thank you for joining us on this journey. Now, here's your host. Welcome, everyone. I'm Annie Levin, and this is Precipice, a show that aspires to stand at the edge, the edge of what we know, what we understand, what's familiar or comfortable, to see what conversations emerge from there. We invite guests willing to explore that terrain with us. They may be expert in certain things, but none of us are expert in navigating this troubled time. So we will be wondering out loud together. It's my great pleasure today to welcome Lonnie Grafman. Lonnie is an instructor in the Environmental Resources Engineering Department at Humboldt State University, the founder of the Practivistas Summer Abroad Full Immersion Resilient Community Technology Program, the advisor for the Epi Apocalyptic City Art Project Swale, the chief product officer of Nexi, and the president of the Apropedia Foundation, sharing knowledge to build rich, sustainable lives. Lonnie has developed courses at universities in four countries and facilitated engagements around the world. He has worked and led teams on hundreds of domestic and international projects across a broad spectrum of sustainable design and entrepreneurship, from solar energy to improved cook stoves, from micro-hydropower to rainwater catchment, from earthen construction to plastic bottle schoolrooms. Throughout all these technology implementations, he has found the most vital component to be community. His first book, To Catch the Rain, is due out in December 2017 and covers inspiring stories of communities coming together to catch their own rain and how you can do it too. It's available at www.rainbook.org. Lonnie, welcome to Precipice. Thank you. It is great to be here. I uh, really enjoyed your introduction. Well, I'm really glad you're here. Um, So by way of context, the way that you and I met is a couple months ago on Precipice, I interviewed Mary Mattingly. And she's the artist responsible for Swale, which is a floating food forest on a barge that at the time was parked in the Bronx. And I went up to visit the food forest when you were doing a workshop there. And we'll definitely talk about rainwater catchment, which was the subject of that workshop, because you have a book coming out on that. Um, But first, I want to just take a step back and give our listeners a bit more of a sense of what you do. So you describe yourself as a practivist. And I'm wondering if you can speak a bit about what that word means and what it is that you do. Hmm. Um, I, I, I love that question. And uh, I'm sure like a lot of the questions on your show, it's, it, I can either give an easy answer or a hard answer. Um, I'm going to shoot. Oh, right give the, the hard answer. answer. Is that? Yeah, I want the hard <laughs> answer. Is that is that is that the right spot for for precipice? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, um, I realized a long time ago when I was when I was a uh, a young teenager or maybe an older child um, that I wasn't happy with how the system was set up. It wasn't really serving me or, or anyone I knew, and uh, and I like a lot of the peers of my time kind of went a destructive path of trying to tear things down, um, tear the things down that we didn't, that, that weren't serving us, that weren't keeping people healthy and happy. 
um, and that seemed to be serving only a few, you know, the the rich. And uh, um, after a couple of years of that, I realized that it, it really wasn't working. Um, just breaking things down wasn't working. And so uh, I tried out activism, kind of just trying to yell uh, to people to tell them what not to do. And, and then I realized that my constitution wasn't really set up for that. It didn't really, at the end of the day, I was, I was really tired. Um, and, uh, and so then I, I turned to just kind of trying to create the future that I wanted. Um, and that began a, a 20 something year journey to, to where I'm at now. Uh, and, and on that journey, I somehow ended up teaching at university and bringing students abroad to, to build projects and, and uh, after years of doing that, uh, reporters would ask, you know, well, what are you called? And I never had a name for, for what we were. And I said, well, just, you know, just talk about the projects. The projects are what, import- what are important. And, uh, and I was having that same conversation in, in Chiapas, Mexico, with a group called Otros Mundos. And I was there trying to de- describe how uh, me and my students work together and, um, and how we're not activists and how, in fact, in Mexico, it's really important that we're not activists because it's illegal for foreigners to act like that. Um, and, uh, and, and I was stumbling around because my Spanish is, is not that great. And, uh, and it's also something that's a little bit hard to describe. And finally, uh, Tanya Garcia, the one of the directors of Otros Mundos, she, she stopped me and she's like, oh, you're not an activist, you're a practivist. And, uh, and it finally stuck. And so, so that's, that's the long answer. The short answer is that um, it's really important to have, have activists out there telling people, you know, what the problems of the world are and what we what what we need to stop doing. Um, and uh, that's hard for me to do. So what I love to do is to build things that people will want to do instead. So instead of telling people to no longer use coal, I just try to build renewable energies and energy efficient systems that make it easy to just switch to solar. Okay, so you were just talking about, broadly speaking, what practivism is, and you gave the example of, of rather than telling people not to use coal, um, you give them other things they can do that they would actually just want to stop using coal. Can you talk a bit about, there, I know there's just a vast number of forms of, of uh, what are often called appropriate technology that you work on, and I'm wondering if you can talk a bit, just to give an overview of the types of systems that you help people implement. Uh, yeah, that's you know we've built over a thousand projects, so it's it's always fun to see which one comes to to, to my head first. Um, uh, today, I was on the uh, on the phone with one of our community partners in Dominican Republic, and the thing that's important to know about how Practivistas work is that when 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 I get to a community, I have no idea what I'm going to be building, except for trust. That's the only thing that that I hope will be built. Um, and uh, then once the trust is built, we go through community processes together of figuring out, okay, well, what are our top needs and what are our top resources and what is it that we might be able to partner on? And so, um, for example, in one community in Dominican Republic, uh, one of the top needs was was more space for a school. And one of the top resources was was trash, particularly plastic bottles. And so we, we worked together in, in just a month to build a, a schoolroom from plastic bottles um, and, uh, and other resources. Mm. Then uh, that community helped with another community in, in Dominican Republic to do another schoolroom and kind of upgrade what we were working on. And in that, in that area, we have a rainwater 
catchment system, solar power, and a plastic bottle schoolroom that uses other waste materials like sawdust for the finish and broken tiles for the floor and uh, industrial waste industrial wood for, for some of the, um, the windows. And uh, that, would be, that would be just an example. Um, and then sometimes we'll end up in a community that might have the same resources but different needs. Uh, so yet another community in Dominican Republic is a community called Arroyo Norte, and they live on the dump. Um, all the materials for Santo Domingo come right through there. And, uh, you know, if you really want to get to know a place, visit away. You know, every, every city has its away, where its water goes, where its trash goes, and Arroyo Norte is where the trash goes. And their top need was things that they can make businesses from. And uh, we ended up back to plastic bottles being a, a main material. But there, what we did is we designed a system that extrudes waste plastic into strips that can then be woven together using traditional technologies to make, to make baskets and, uh, um, and other consumer goods. Um, so that would be just a few, a, a few examples, but we build, uh, you know, houses out of earth and uh, um, solar photovoltaics and solar vaccine refrigerators and wastewater treatment using plants. And, uh, you know, if you pick a resource and, uh, and a need, I could give you dozens of examples of how the creative ways the communities come together to make that. Mm. So... I have 100 questions. <laughs> so you mentioned um, communities coming together to make things. And, I, and, and I'm, I'm curious about, you know, I, I think a lot of people's imagining of how design and engineering works is that it happens uh, in a vacuum, that you sit in a, a planning room somewhere and you make an amazing design and then you go and implement it. But it sounds like what you're talking about is a very different process for figuring out how to work with communities and to meet their needs. And I'm wondering if you can speak to what the process is by which you, you do this sort of work. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm definitely not the only person working in engineering and design to, to realize this. And I think business actually realized it before a lot of engineering, but my take is that engineers build fantastic stuff. It's just usually not the right stuff. Um, and so what we, what we do at Humboldt State University and, and a lot of places is, is work with our engineers and train our engineers to first be listeners, um, you know, uh, reporters and anthropologists. And, and, and we try to build teams when we can that have diverse members where there's people that, that have training and skills in, in listening. Um, and, you know, so that's where it starts. In, in design thinking, uh, they'll often talk about empathy, you know, building your empathy, really understanding what the, the needs are. Um, for me, I often like to take that all the way to co-design, where you know, it's not just being designed for and listening to, it's being designed by the, the, the actual stakeholders and you know, the people that will be using it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's where the process starts. And then, and then it becomes a very iterative process. And sometimes we are going back to the lab, for instance, in, uh, in one community uh, that needed a public pharmacy, they needed a building material that was strong, um, that had less cost and less carbon and used more local resources than traditional concrete block. And so we invented blocks from rice husk ash and uh, sawdust and rice husks themselves um, cement and caliche. And, uh, and then we made 
about 3,000 of those blocks and slowly iterated them until they could build buildings. And then we built buildings with it. And at times, we'll actually bring those blocks back to university, back to more of a, a vacuum type environment and run it through uh, different tests using the resources that we have at, at the university. And this, is, this, is, this particular example was at uh, UNIBE, which is an architecture university. Mm. Um, and so, so there's a spot for that, you know, that, that in a vacuum, you know, sometimes you need to test a material without all of the systemic, that all the system interactions. But really, the reason that we teach things in a vacuum is not because it's better. Uh, it's because it's easier to teach and it's easier to test. But, but we do a disservice if we, leave, if we leave our designers and our students thinking that designing in a vacuum is a good idea. You know, slowly through your career, we start peeling layers off of this vacuum. We start putting in friction. We start putting in, you know, an atmosphere. Um, but I think the most important thing for us to put in is the actual human interactions and the community interactions and how it interacts with other systems. And that makes it very, very complex. Yet, I think that we should do it from the very beginning so we don't forget that if you're not designing with its context in, in, in consideration, then you might be designing something very cool, but it's probably not appropriate. Hmm. Yeah. I, so you were mentioning context, and I'm, I'm interested in thinking about the work that you do across a range of contexts. And the context at the moment that we're doing this interview in the U.S. is one in which um, where you are in California, there have been just massive forest fires that I think are just now beginning to be contained or just now contained. And then we're and we're just weeks after um, the hurricanes in uh, Houston and Puerto Rico and seeing just massive infrastructure damage and things like that. And um, I guess i'm I'm interested in talking about the the why. Of, of this work that you do from the standpoint of like, uh, uh, you know, on the one hand, it, it, it's easy to imagine if there's a community that has absolutely no access to water, why it would be important to build a way for them to have water. Um, but I think there's equally, um, it's really important in the infrastructures that we have here in the U.S., which are a lot more fragile than people realize. There's a lot of potential there to be shifting how we design our systems so that they're not so susceptible to complete collapse in the face of natural disasters and other disruptions. Can you speak to that a bit? I'd, I'd love to. Um, I, I think in the context of this type of work, I'm usually looking for projects that have, have the effect that you're talking about, have a local and more immediate effect, and also a global and sometimes a longer term effect. Um, and so, for example, rainwater catchment, uh, where it's obvious if you're in a community that has no water, why you'd want to use it. Well, in, in the U.S., there's there's some other reasons that might be important. And um, one of those is the anti-fragility that I think that you're you're talking about, you know, is how do you build resilience and anti-fragility into your into your community. And one of the ways is to distribute your resources and to distribute your, you know, your, your, how you're meeting your needs. Um, if there's only one source of the water and that gets destroyed, then your whole neighborhood is without that or your whole city is without water. If everyone or if a lot of people have rainwater catchment, then you probably have enough water in that, in, in that community to take care of, you know, the waiting period of any natural disaster. 
Um, and so you have these, the, these local impacts. In addition, with rainwater catchment, you end up having less runoff because you're, you're stopping more of the water. You know, we have built all these impermeable surfaces. Water hits it and then it just rushes and takes trash and everything with it. And rainwater catchment can help slow that down. Um, and those are those, those are those local and more immediate impacts. Uh, and and we could we can name a bunch of those having more control over your water and what's in your water, um, and then there's these other aggregate global longer term impacts, and that's that you know your water has an amount of embedded energy. You know to get water to your house, there's a there's a chemical load and there's an energy load in getting it to you and in getting getting it away from you, and it's it's a little obscene that that we still defecate in the cleanest water. In, you know, <laughs> that, that most people will ever have access to. Um, and so systems like graywater and rainwater can make it so you're not importing chemicals and running pumps just to get this, this water to your house. And then because you have less, less chemicals and less embedded energy, that means you have less carbon in the atmosphere from your, your impacts, which then means less climate change, which then hopefully leads us back to less natural disasters mm-hmm. or fewer. Right. You, you were mentioning uh, the all of the inputs, all of the energy inputs that go into our water getting to us. And I think certainly for me, it was only in the last couple of years that I started to have any awareness at all of just how much energy goes into my getting energy even, right? Like Mm -hmm. how much energy goes into the energy that gets to me, how much goes into the water that gets to me, how far it travels. I mean, I'm in New York City. And so a lot of this water is coming from a reservoir that's, you know, 100 miles upstate. And the amount of energy it takes to get that water down here and then all of the processing and cleaning of the water. And I know, I don't, what do you think it, will take or and what is out there I know you've designed a product uh, called Nexi and I'm just wondering about people's awareness of just how much energy is embedded in the energy that we use Mm -hmm. so you know this is another example of the the kind of activism versus practicism my my take is is that most people care somewhat and there's not much I can do to change the level of their care other people can Right. Other, other people are more constitutionally set up to really try to make people care more. Uh, what I try to do is just make things really easy, because I think when given when given a choice, people want to have less negative impacts. In fact, they want to have positive impacts. But it, it can't be something that they have to study for weeks to understand. And it can't be something that daily it takes them minutes for every decision. Yeah. And so, for instance, uh, 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 the product that my, my company has, the Nexi, is an energy monitor that lives in your house and it shows you how much energy you're using instantly and throughout the day. And it does it just with colors. So no numbers, no graphs. Um, you can get that via cell phone if you want it. But it's just, it's just colors. So it just it helps you understand. You don't have to research which appliances in your ha- are in your house and what their power consumption is and what the difference between a kilowatt and a kilowatt hour is. You can just look and see, oh, I'm, I'm usually orange at the end of the day and now all of a sudden I'm red. What did I do different? And, and you can make that, make that change. Um, 
In addition, I'm the uh, managing director of the Northern California hub of something called Blue Tech Valley. And what we, what we are is a, a pathway for entrepreneurs working in energy, water, and agricultural efficiency to lower California ratepayers' electric use and, and payments. And so anyone who has uh, ideas or products they're trying to bring to market, um, there's money in California to help that. And I think that that's what we need is, is, is more of our inventors working on the problems that actually matter. Right. Um, and in, in, you know, in Silicon Valley right now, there's this idea that that um, innovation is is at the center of the Venn diagram of of do people like it? Will it work and will it make money? And, and I disagree. I don't I, or sorry. That's what they say that innovation is. And, and I disagree. I don't think that that's innovation to me. Innovation is, um, you know, it's it's all of those things. But instead of will it make money is is it worthwhile? Mm-hmm. And then entrepreneurship is like, okay, then can we take that innovation and make it make money? And uh, so I think we just need more of our inventors, uh, more of our entrepreneurs working on these issues that will do that. That way it doesn't become a burden for every, every citizen. You know, like, like you said, you just became aware a couple of years ago. You seem very aware, <laughs> very aware. So imagine what it took to bring it to your awareness. And now we're going to try to roll that out to 350 million people. I think instead, if we can just make it so that it's very easy to make the right choice. For instance, right now in it, all across the U.S., there's these community choice aggregation or community choice energy programs. So in Arcata, where I live, I can literally just sign my name and all of a sudden I'm paying one penny per kilowatt hour more. So for me, that's about four cents a day more. And I have 100% renewable at my house. And that's all it took. I didn't have to install solar panels or do any of that work. And I think that we need, we just need more of that. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like that you're really looking at design thinking being applied across the board. So not just in the projects that you're setting up in the Dominican Republic or wherever else, but really approaching all of these problems from a design standpoint and thinking about what is going to be actually usable for people and, and something that will, will easily be, be easy to implement and help them. A hundred percent. And, you know, to make a weird tie in with the, the resilience and fragility of communities we were talking about, I think that we need that as designers. And the way to do that is to build capacitance, to be able to to be able to accept when people don't like what you made, you know, show it to them early and get their feedback right away and just be just be open to the gift of criticism. Mm. And that, you know, that becomes that's the next step in that in that design thinking. So you do that with our with our energy efficiency devices. You do that with our energy generation and you just keep iterating and making things not only more convenient, but more desirable and uh, and and fun. Well, and that openness to feedback really ties back to what you were talking about earlier with communities, right, where the way that you approach going into a community is not that you're coming in to to save the day, but really to say, okay, what's needed here, and then tapping into all of the wisdom about how the community functions so that what gets designed actually works. 100%, especially in other communities. When you're working in your own community, I think there's a lot more leeway, but in other communities, I'm going to these other communities to gain for me so that I can learn so that I can eat other, you know, other food and dance other dances and learn other languages. And that's, and the students who come with me, that's why we're going. Um, And, and hopefully together we build something amazing. 
Well, that might be a good a good spot for a break. So we're going to take a short break, and then uh, we'll be back to talk more. My guest today is Lonnie Grafman, a practivist working with communities to build rich, sustainable lives. His book, To Catch the Rain, will be released in December. You can learn more at www.rainbook.org. And we will be right back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Do you know that you were born to experience revolutionary wellness? Have you wondered why extraordinary physical, mental, and emotional health has eluded you? Do you know that your infinite personal power resides right here in the present moment? People all over the world are awakening to their birthright. Revolutionary Wellness. Subscribe today at revolutionarywellnessmagazine.com and begin your journey into the mystery. Engage with experts in topics of nourishment, wisdom, and empowerment. Develop mental clarity. Live wholeheartedly and be empowered to live an authentic life of passion and purpose. The world, now more than ever, needs you to feel revolutionarily well. Explore and integrate new ways of being. Learn to access your own unique treasure, the wisdom that is right there inside you, waiting to be revealed. Experience a renewed, vivid, and nourishing relationship with yourself and the world around you. Log on and subscribe to Revolutionary Wellness Magazine today and experience the publication devoted to your journey toward extraordinary health and well-being. RevolutionaryWellnessMagazine.com In these times of converging crisis, the world needs us now more than ever before. Revolutionary Wellness Magazine is devoted to amplifying inspiring voices, facing challenging realities head-on, opening up new places of power, and inviting curiosity about the paths we might take toward personal, communal, and global health. The magazine aspires to help us become the change we wish to see in the world, co-creating the more beautiful world we know to be possible. Join us on this journey. Log on and subscribe to Revolutionary Wellness Magazine today at revolutionarywellnessmagazine.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. listening to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. Our hosts are clinicians of mind and body medicine and lifestyle change. They are writers, activists, educators, and change agents. You can reach the show and our hosts at experiencerevolutionarywellness.com. Now, back to our show. Welcome back to Precipice. I'm Annie Levin, and my guest today is Lonnie Grafman, president of the Apropedia Foundation, an online resource dedicated to making appropriate technology information available to all. Lonnie has worked on hundreds of domestic and international projects across a broad spectrum of sustainable design and entrepreneurship, from solar to improved cook stoves to earthing construction. 
His book on rainwater catchment will be released in December 2017. You can learn more at rainbook.org. So, Lonnie, let's start there because you have this book coming out in December to catch the rain. I'm wondering if you can um, describe the book and what's in it and how it came into being. I'd love to. Um, so the, the book is pretty much three books in one, um, which, uh, you know, traditionally is not the best way to write a book. <laughs> you know, uh, um, ideally when you write a book, you pick one audience and you pick one thing and you write that really well. Uh, but I, I'm not really interested in that. I was more interested in writing, uh, books that would have a lot of impact um, and so this is my first book and I'm flailing through it just like I'm, I, I, I'm hoping that other authors do. Um, and I'm really nervous about putting it out there because, um, you know, it's, it's, it's exposing. Uh, and the book is in three parts. So there's inspiring stories of how communities come together to catch their, their own rain. And these are from communities that I've worked in. And, and each one of those stories has implicit lessons of how community creativity came up with something that uh, an engineer in a vacuum, as you had mentioned, would have never come up with on their own. Um, and then uh, there's also a technical detail section of the book that, that goes into the technical details of rainwater systems all across the world. So very generalized to, you know, I cover a, uh, a myriad of different roof types and gutter types and first flushes and tanks and, uh, and just really trying to make it that no matter what size you're trying to design for, no matter if you're in a rich neighborhood or a poor neighborhood or in North America and South America or where, wherever that you can, you have the technical details to get you started. And then the third section, and I, I hope this doesn't scare away your listeners, but the third section is math. Like, um, <laughs> that it's like, it's just straight up math. And, and it's the, it's, it's written in a way that hopefully is accessible, but also uh, I find it to be math that's very empowering, um, not just for building and designing rainwater catchment systems, but for other, other systems uh, in, in water or renewable energy, um, just kind of a, a mathematical way of thinking about things so we can make decisions beforehand. Like, is this even a good idea? How, how long will it take to, to capture the amount of water that we need and how much water do we actually need? And it leads you through that. Um, and there's even problem sets at the back so that, so that teachers at the high school or university level uh, can, can use it as a textbook. Um, and you can read any one of those three sections and, and be fine on your own, or you can use one to kind of inspire you to read other parts. And that's that. And that's the book. I, I think there was more to your question, um, but uh, well, it's uh, a little bit about how the book came into being. But but mm-hmm. first, I do. I'm I'm. I saw a statistic on your website that said that the average American home uh, has the capacity to capture thirty three thousand gallons of water a year. Correct. And that's an astonishing amount of water. And I and I guess I wanted to talk about that and talk about what why someone might want to do this because you know when you when you can here in the US at least when you can walk to a faucet and turn it on and have water come out at least at the moment it it's it's harder to imagine why you might want to capture rainwater but i think there's a lot of good reasons to do it so i'm wondering if you could talk about those a bit since most people the average person has just an enormous amount of water falling on their heads every year that is then running off 
um, into a variety of places depending on where they live. So, uh, you know, I don't know if there is, uh, there isn't one answer, but I, what I'd love to do is give you answers that I've heard from other people and then, and my own personal answer, like my own personal reason, because why you're, what you're asking is a, is a why and it becomes very personal. Um, one of the ones that I've, that I've heard quite often is that is from people who want control over what is put into their water. Um, and, uh, you know, for instance, our water is fluoridated and chlorinated. And there's some people who, who say, you know, I just want control over what's being put into my water. Um, and there's uh, other people who um, they just really want to be prepared in case something happens to the local water supply by natural disaster or other. They want to know that they, that they have enough water. In fact, one of the groups that I worked with, they wanted enough water for their whole neighborhood to, to, to be able to survive for a week easily. And they just wanted to be that spot that if something happened, you come here and, this is, and we have water for everyone. Um, so they installed a tank that was much larger than, than they actually needed for their household use. Um, for me, it, it comes uh, down to this, this Japanese term, matanai. Um, and uh, uh, I think I'm pronouncing it good enough. And it's, it's, the, um, it's the sense that you feel. It's that feeling you feel inside when you see something wasted. And I, and I think that words can have a, a lot of power. And it wasn't until I heard that word later in my life that I was like, oh, there's a word for this. And, and just having an, a, a, a word for it made it even more real. And so when, I, when I'm using, you know, really like water that's been, that's been chlorinated and pumped and stored and piped, and I'm using it to, to do something that um, is, it could easily be done with rainwater. I feel the waste of it, you know? Um, and so, so that's an, you know, another reason to, to do it, but it, it has to kind of match with, with the user. <laughs> um, some of, some of those cases are more obvious, you know, why you would turn off the lights, you know, um, why you would turn off the water. I think we're better at it with water in general. You know, one of the examples I give with energy, um, is that if you, if you were to come to somebody's house and they had their faucet running and you turned it off and they're like, oh no, I'm going to use that later you would kind of look at them like they're crazy. So I think we all have some sense of Montanai with our, with our water. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think that, you know, for me, because I've seen all of the resources that go into getting water to my house, uh, I feel it maybe a little bit more acutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I've seen, it's just, it's interesting. I here in the city, a lot of the community gardens do rainwater catchment right. because they're using a lot of water, for the for what they're growing, and it just gets to be incredibly expensive. So that seems to also be a factor, um, at least Great. here here in the city. Great call. Yeah, you know, I I live in Humboldt, and our water is very inexpensive, um, and so that that one doesn't come up for me as often. But yeah, it it, it it's uh, there's a cost associated with that water, and also if you have to deliver it, if if you're at a community garden, if you might be able to have your hose just a lot closer if you just have rainwater catchment in your, in your community garden. And also you don't have to know who's paying that water bill. No, it's, mm-hmm. it's just there. Yeah. And, um, and then there's a, sorry, one more. There, yeah. There's a final reason that, that ends up happening a lot in the U S for me. And, and that's uh, uh, coming from a lot of parents who really want to instill uh, an environmental stewardness and a scientific understanding in their, in their children. And so I've seen that one be a reason for a lot of people installing rainwater is so that they can really understand, uh, you know, I, 
when I'm lecturing about water at different you know, universities and, and communities, I always ask a, a, a few questions. And one of the questions is, where does your water come from? And very few people can answer that question. You know, um, and, uh, uh, you know, sometimes the answers are, are, you know, you know, kind of beautiful, natural, scientific, you know, the hydrologic cycle, evaporation. Sometimes it's uh, really um, kind of hysterically mundane, you know, from my faucet. My water comes from my faucet. Sometimes it's, it's a little bit depressing. You know, it comes from Pepsi. You know, that's who owns our water. <laughs> um, and then the next question I ask is, you know, where does your water go when, it, when you're done with it? And the most common answer is away, like the dump that we were talking about. You know, the water just goes away. It goes down the drain. It goes away. And so having rainwater catchment it ties us back into you know, our resource use um, and, and our, our, our disposal. I'm wondering, you've done a lot of projects in a lot of places, and I imagine that you – that there's some variation in the places you've been in terms of how far away away is. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and I'm wondering, what have you noticed about the difference in people's behavior depending on how far away this, this mystical away is? Uh, so this is not scientific at all. Just my anecdotal experience is that there's a direct proportionality between how far away is and how egregious the, the, the abuse of our resources are. Um, so the more disconnected you are from your resource generation and disposal, the more likely people are to just to, to use it wantonly, you know, without with impunity. Um, and the closer you are to your away, for instance, if it's literally in your backyard, the much more thoughtful and, and the easier it is to be mindful of, of what you're using and where it goes. And, and it's only been it's only been about 100 years that we've been this disconnected from our, our use and our disposal. You know, we don't even hear our energy being generated, let alone, let alone smell it, you know. Mm-hmm. But we're being impacted by it, you know. The, you know, these, you know, you can track these natural disasters directly to our egregious abuse of, of our natural resources, and, and including our atmosphere. You know, it's mostly invisible to us, but it's still, it's still impacting us. Mm-hmm. Well, and one of the things I, I asked that question not to, to induce some sense of self-hatred in all of the people who <laughs> live in a place where away is is a bit further off. I, I remember, actually, I think it was the first episode of the show uh, in talking to our producer. I was remembering my own experience of the water being turned off in my building for a period of days and having to um, fill my fill a couple pots at a neighbor's house and then that was the water I had to live with for a period of time (laughs) and just how much my whole consciousness changed when that was the situation and then how quickly it flipped back when the water was turned back on that it's just that it's 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 not it's not that all of the people who live in places where away is unseen are are bad people it's really hard to stay connected to these things if they're not right in front of you Right. Yeah. And, and I'm, I, I definitely don't, I, I want to stay in a, in abundance, but I, I'd, I'd like to raise awareness without it being a burden and without it being a guilt thing. You know, our, the, my, you know, the device next, the Nexi, it, it's not meant to guilt people into anything. It's just meant to be a, a light that shows you how much energy you're using so that you have a connection. Mm-hmm. 
but there's no bell that goes off. There's no like, you're a bad person. You're burning the world. That, that is not, that's not part of our ethos. You know, we, we actually spent a lot of time picking a red that, that wasn't menacing. Some of the feedback that we'd get in our focus groups is that, oh, that red is, it's, it's intimidating me. It's, you know, it's telling me I'm a bad person. Like, that's not the red we're going for. We're just going for a like, hey, <laughs> you're using a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so going back for a minute to the book. So this book is the result of years and years and years and years of, of you working in the field and designing lots of different systems in with with other people and um I imagine that this is just a huge huge labor of love and I also know that you um it was it's important to you that this book be available to people who want to access it for free in in an online form and I'm just wondering if you can talk about I know you're at the Apropedia Foundation as well, where there's all this information posted online about different technologies. That's also, it's been really important to you throughout your your career, it seems like, to make information available to people. And I'm wondering if you can talk both about that principle and also just how it, what it means for you personally, financially, to be as committed as you are to having the information be available for free. Well, I'm going to answer the first question uh, first because that'll be easier for me. The, the money part is still something that uh, um, that I, I, I struggle with and I'm really learning learning about. Um, the first part is, is yeah, this was definitely a, a, a labor of love. It's something that I have 15 of these books in mind, and I would love to write one every year or two. Um, and uh, uh, But it it's like I said at the beginning, it's, it's very exposing and, and, uh, and, and it's, it's a exciting challenge, but I do, I do need to meet a certain level of success. So I'll be following the same design principles with this book. I've already had a hundred pre-readers and they've adapted how I, how I've written the book. And, and I really feel so lucky that I had a hundred people willing to read the book in its early states and give me advice. And then once I put it out there, you know, we'll see how, the, how the sales are and, and how the downloads are. Um, I, I did have uh, a publisher that I was working with a few years ago to do this book. And we came to a stumbling block where they were willing to let the book be free, but only after four years of it being for sale in a, in a physical form. And, uh, and, and in retrospect, I think I probably should have taken that deal. But I was feeling very strong that I want all of the knowledge that, that's created through these community-based processes, I want them to be shared for free with everyone. And I want everyone to be part of the research and development of the, of the world. So like a corporation would have their research and development department. I just want us all to be that for each other. And so I was committed to that. And I was really lucky. Eventually, Humboldt State Press um, uh, took on the project and was happy to produce it in digital form for free for everyone. And then the sales from the physical copy, all of the proceeds from the sales go back to the Apropedia Foundation, which um, has uh, over 10,000 visitors a day from, from pretty much every country in the world um, uh, sharing these kind of sustainable technologies. Um, so that that's kind of the, the, the first answer. It was 
it was really exciting. I had, uh, I spoke to a lot of other authors and they, they gave me great encouragement and let me know that the feelings I was feeling um, uh, are ones that eventually do pass. Um, <laughs> they haven't passed for me yet. I'm still like very, very nervous. <laughs> um and uh, and still, you know, I still want to change things all of the time, but but it's it, it's ready and it'll be out in December. And actually, right now we're seeking sponsors, um, so which is kind of something that I don't think most books do. But we're looking for uh, nonprofit and individual and corporate sponsors who who just want to help bring this book, you know, to to the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it sounds like uh, I mean, there's just a couple pieces of what you said that are so inspiring. And, and one of them, I, I knew you're talking about sponsorship and, and that piece, but just your willingness to put yourself out there and to, um, to show the book to a hundred people and have all those pre-readers look at it and give feedback. And you've talked about in design, the importance of being willing to hear that your design doesn't work in order to grow. It, it feels like such an important skill right now that a lot of people don't have because I mean, I'm thinking, I guess, of myself that I am terrified to fail and often don't let other people in on what I'm working on because I am afraid it's terrible rather than being excited to know if it's terrible. Right. Yeah, no, that's. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a saying um, in, in entrepreneurship, which is fail fast and fail often. And it's even more important in community based projects because you know, your failures can have real impacts. They're not just learning lessons. There's other people that are being impacted by it. And so, yeah, the, the, you know, whatever analogy you want, rip the bandaid off, you know, just, just, I think once you know that we're all just kind of embarrassingly flailing through this world, trying to figure it out, right. Then it becomes easier to just expose yourself and say, here's my work. Tell me it's wrong. And in fact, I required all of those readers I, I gave them a little, I gave them a Google form and on it required them to, to say that some things were actually terrible. Like I, you know, just to, because sometimes people don't want to say that, right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's on both sides. It's really exposing to give people criticism, right. Mm-hmm. Even though it's a gift, it's a gift to, to give somebody criticism. You're saying that I believe in you and I, I believe in you enough to believe it's worth it. And I trust you enough to trust that you can receive this. Right. Yet, yet we're in a, we're in a time where I think people are very sensitive to that. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like it's a skill that you've cultivated over time? Like, have you, have you gotten better at, <laughs> at it? Yeah. Sorry for laughing. I have, I just have epic failures. I mean, I, I learned this from projects that I would put, you know, 10 months and, and living on a couch and putting everything in and hiding it from people until it was perfect. And then watching it just fail epically you know even the first version of Apropedia I spent a thousand hours building it and after a year less than a thousand hours of viewers had viewed it so I would have been better off just knocking on people's door so I, I went back <laughs> to the drawing port and I and I brought more people in you know in on the project and and got feedback quicker and and you know now we have that many views in in a week mm-hmm. I think but that- yes so, sorry, to answer your question, yes, this is a skill you can develop, and it take, I think it takes training for most people. So if you were going to give someone a recommendation on their, their, their 101 failure lesson, like what would be a first step? <laughs> I, and, <laughs> um, well, it depends on who I'm talking to. I mean, I think uh, 
you know, for a lot of people, it's ask somebody on a date. <laughs> just, you know, it's a very similar thing, you know, like it's a very, it's a very scary, it's a very scary process. The next thing I would say is if you're going to design something, make it as fast as challenge yourself to whatever you're planning on designing, make it in one day and show it to a few people, including some of your jerkiest friends and make it out of cardboard, out of duct tape, out of things laying around your house. Um, there is a, there's a style called prototyping um, that uh, it has a champion and you can read a lot about it online. So like prototyping but with an E and the idea is just get it out there fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, that's another one that I would, uh, that I would suggest. Um, if really just train yourself to be able to hear that this is terrible. And if you're showing somebody something, let's say that you have a website AD and you're showing it to somebody, don't show them how to use it. Just watch them not understand it and realize what's wrong. <laughs> you know, try, yeah. try not holding their hand. Uh-huh. Yeah. Let it, let it stand on its own. Right. And if it can't, you have a lot of good information. Exactly. I've heard, I'm trying to remember, I've just, I've heard failure described as just feedback. If you can relate to it that way. Right. But not so that's, Yeah, and I think that it's actually, it's easier the sooner you do it, right? Mm-hmm. Especially in the pro- type of projects that, that I have the luck of working on. If I wait to the end to fail, I've just wasted a community's money. Right. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of in, in Las Malvinas and one of the communities I work in, you know, the average salary is one to two dollars a day. So if I've just wasted four hundred and fifty dollars, I've now wasted somebody's yearly salary. Like so it's mm-hmm. it's important that we're we're doing this together mm-hmm. and that we're iterating quickly. Mm-hmm. So I want to circle back to the to the money question. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, because I thought we got away with that. I know. <laughs> um, because this is something you and I talked about before the show as a, as a challenge that both of us, I think, are grappling with in terms of how does one do the work in the world um, that, that feels most compelling and deal with the need to have money. And I'm wondering if you can just talk about where you are with that, which does not have to be uh, having all the answers. Yeah, I, I, I definitely don't. Um, the, the first thing from a work perspective is, is I want to work with people to create a future where, where it's not a binary choice between making meaning and making money. As I've realized that my whole life, every time I'm given the choice, do I want to make meaning or do I want to make money, I choose make meaning. And I, I don't want that to have to be a choice. I think that making meaning should make money. And that's kind of a cop out of an answer because I'm talking about community. Inside of me personally... I've, uh, um, I've had to kind of change my relationship with money, change my fears around, uh, uh, around what money means and learn to just, um, uh, for instance, with this book, I'm putting the book out there for free. It's, it's totally free. But, but if you want to sponsor the book, if you want to be part of that ride, then that's going to cost money. And also if you want to buy the physical book, it, it's that physical book is going to have money that's then going back to the, the nonprofit foundation. Um, and, and, you know, though that kind of balance is striking really well for me at this moment, but I've really only been trying to figure out my relationship with money for about three years. <laughs> Before that, it just kind of worked. I had no idea where the money was coming from. I just got to work on projects all around the world. And that's what I cared about. And some of those were costing me money. And sometimes money would come in 
Um, and, and usually it worked out <laughs> and, and, uh, and I realized that money is a resource just like all these other resources. And so I'm trying to treat money more like I treat water and more like I treat energy as, as something that I'm now aware of. And that awareness makes it less of an egregious abuse situation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and it occurs to me, I don't even quite know what the connection is here, but it occurs to me just so much of the ethos of, of all of the work that you do has to do with community and that none of us are meant to do this alone. And all of the projects that you do involve other people. Writing the book involves other people. Failing quickly involves other people. And I just wonder if if part of the struggle with the relationship with money, at least that I've had, is that that's an arena where I really get very individualistic about it. And I wonder if there are ways to bring money into the a more communal consciousness in some way that might allow it to not be quite so troubling. Hmm. Yeah, I, I love that. I think the part that I can really relate to is that, you know, I, I I've I've worried that oh, am I making money on the backs of my community partners without giving back? And and um, what really helped me was just talking to my community, talking to the people that I work with telling them how I felt and, and literally watching them laugh at me. Um, it's really, you know, so it was, it was almost like this emotional baggage around money that I've been holding for 15 years inside myself. Once I started, once I started telling people about it, that I, I feel like, Oh, if I got, if I got paid, if I had money come in for this book and I'm talking about your stories that I'm, I'm somehow making money on your stories. And, uh, you know, and their point was one that that seemed silly to them. Two, that if it means that we can do more projects together, then go for it. And and, uh, um, and three, that they that they re, they believe that I wouldn't. Uh, you know, I I don't even know how to to end this because I'd be putting words into my community partners' mouths. But I can say that what they said to me made me feel totally okay with getting paid for the work that we do when we make meaning. Mm. well that's a beautiful place for us to stop um thank you so much for being here Lonnie and for dedicating your life to helping communities design and build systems that are sustainable and resilient and for so generously making that knowledge available to all thank you very much I really appreciate the the talk My guest today has been Lonnie Grafman, instructor at Humboldt State University, founder of the Practivista's Summer Abroad Program, president of the Apropedia Foundation, and author of a forthcoming book about rainwater catchment, To Catch the Rain, that can be found at www.rainbook.org. Next week, Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio will be back with we have hardly even begun to listen with Bio Akamolefe and James Perkinson. Please join us for that conversation at this time, 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, on Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. It has been such a pleasure to be here with you all today. Thank you for listening in. Until next time, may we be willing to stand at the edge, unblinking, together. I'm Annie Levin, and this is Precipice. Thank you for opening your heart and mind to new ways of seeing, to greater degrees of compassion, and to pathways to health for our world with Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. Join us next Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time to expand your perspective, deepen your attention, 
and cultivate practices that support personal, communal, and global health on Voice America's health and wellness channel.